Good morning. It can be fun to try to boil down a story into one sentence. So, for example, what I'm talking about, uh, I've never seen the Titanic, but according to the internet, this is a one-sentence summary. Everyone tries the ice bucket challenge. <laughs> Apparently it's accurate, I don't know. Uh, so, more meaningfully, we can try to sum up the Bible, the story of the Bible in just four words. Here would be our four words. My, my best guess would be creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So that's trying to get cover to cover in just four words. Or you could try to do that with the gospel. How would you put the gospel as briefly as possible? I think four words would do it too. God, man, Christ, response. Today in Mark chapter 12, where we are in the story of Jesus, Jesus is asked to boil down the law. Take all of the commands of the whole Old Testament and boil them down and say, what is the weightiest one? What's the most important? What is the essence of what God requires of his people? And in doing that for us, Jesus will be telling us a lot. He'll be telling us about the law, obviously. He'll be telling us about the law giver. And he'll be telling us about himself, the perfect law keeper. The main point of today's sermon is... Love is the heart of the law, the lawgiver, and the law keeper. Love is the heart of the law. It's the heart of the lawgiver, and it's the heart of the law keeper. Let's read Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating, and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared question him any longer. This is God's holy and inspired word. We'll take this text in two parts. Part one, the heart of the law, verses 28 through 31. Let's recall the context of where we are at in uh, Jesus's life in Mark's telling for us. We've got uh, <clears throat> Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He's cleared the temple, and he's now been facing a series of challenges from the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. And today's challenge comes not from a group, but from one individual. One scribe asked Jesus 
about the most important, the weightiest command of the law. So let's look carefully at Jesus's answer. Verse 29 is the beginning of Jesus' answer. He says, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the first summation, the summation of, of the commands of the whole Old Testament begins not with a command, but a statement. Well, sort of, he says, listen first, but then he says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So at the beginning, you have a statement about God's oneness. I think this oneness that's being highlighted here, both in Deuteronomy and as Jesus quotes it, is not simply monotheism, but, but it's highlighting exclusivity, right? There is no other God to be had in your hearts. This law of God's should be the only binding law for you. It is your baseline, fundamental law, because God is fundamentally the only God. Your only God. So God is one. Now what is he going to demand of his people? Verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You are to love God. Think about Moses speaking this to Israel in the wilderness, having been rescued from Egypt, all the way back in, in Deuteronomy, as it's recorded. What is the fundamental thing that God demands of Israel in the wilderness as he's rescuing them out of slavery? To love God. That's what God wants of them. He wants their love. Think of Israel generations later, living under the reign of good King David, What's at the core of God's love for them then? God's law for them then is to love the Lord their God. Think about Jesus' day, Israel, living under Roman rule. What is the heart of the law for them then? To love God. What does that tell us about God? What does it tell us about his character, that loving him is at the heart of the law? It tells us a lot actually. Think, think about this, this contrast. Think about uh, a mercenary boss whose law is profit, all right? He's ruthless about profit. He'll fire his best friend after a down week in sales, but he'll put up with an unethical jerk forever so long as that unethical jerk keeps making him money. So what's at the throne of that mercenary boss's heart? Money. Or how about this? How about the, the uptight housewife? <laughs> she says, cleanliness is next to godliness. You may fail in various ways, but do not fail to make your bed or to vacuum the couch. Her law is cleanliness. So what might be on the throne of her heart? Maybe it's control. Maybe it's order. The law that somebody carries, that somebody demands, reveals what they're treasuring. So God... Here's God with his law being to love him. He's a God whose heart is love. What other things could have been the heart of the law? So like if we didn't have this passage, if we didn't have Jesus giving the authoritative answer of summing up the whole Old Testament for us, what might our options be? What might we think of as the heart of the law? It could be submission. 
Obviously, submission is huge. We just had a whole lesson on uh, authority and submission in the Sunday school hour, and submitting to God is required. It is not uh, optional. But what's different about the fact of the law being love versus if it was submission? Love gets not just at obedience, but it gets at affection. You can submit to somebody while hating them. To love someone involves feeling affection for them, enjoying him, being relationally united to him. God's demand of us is that we love him. Submission will follow. It's certainly implied in love. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. But God wants something deeper and better for us than mere submission. He wants us to love him, to enjoy him, to find our pleasure in him. When you see this connection between loving something and enjoying something, you see the grace that is inherent in God's care for us in giving us this law. He cares about our joy. He, by commanding our love for him, he is commanding us to be joyful in him. It's like I'm taking my kids to Kings Island and I say, kids, your main rule today is to have fun. And they roll their eyes. It's kind of like that God doing that with us. Like, hey, your main rule is to love the most magnificent, lovely, enjoyable being in the entire universe. That's the heart of God's command for his people, is to love the most lovely thing, to love the most fulfilling love. That's the heart of God's law. The heart of God's law is love. And because of that, the heart of the law giver is love. So now let's consider the descriptions on that love. The rest of of that verse, it describes with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In Deuteronomy, which we read earlier, there's three descriptors. The three descriptors there are heart, understanding, and strength. So obviously there's a language difference between the Hebrew and the Greek, but there's a little different. Jesus adds a a fourth. And then, weirdly too, when the scribe repeats the answer back to Jesus to affirm it, he switches in understanding. So what do we make of that? I think what we make of that is that the point is not, this is loving God with my heart versus this is loving God with my mind versus this is loving God with my strength. I think the point is, this is describing a totality of yourself loving God. This is saying all of you is to love God. He demands a full self kind of love, a wholehearted love. So that means that when we allow something else or someone else to be the biggest affection in our hearts, we are not loving God wholeheartedly. When we, see, when we seek our joy in something other than God, we are giving ourselves to that thing, not to God. God's standard is to have all of us when we are more devoted, more committed, more loving to anything or anyone else. That thing has has become an idol, the thing that we are actually functionally loving, functionally worshiping. That thing has ascended to the throne of our hearts. God is one. 
He's the only God. He demands to be held in our hearts as the only God. He demands exclusivity. He will not be one of many lovers. More on this in a minute, but first we need to understand how this ties in with the second half of the command. See, Jesus has asked for one most important uh, command of the law, and he gives us a bonus answer too. He gives us a second one uh, in verse 31. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. He's doing some important theological reflection in order to tie these two together. They, they aren't actually in Deuteronomy or in the, in the Old Testament side by side, the way Jesus puts them. So he's reflecting on why this love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus chapter 19 should go right alongside what's from Deuteronomy 6. Why does he do that? Well, one of the reasons is that it's actually a reflection of the Ten Commandments. So in the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments relate to God. They're kind of vertical commandments. And then the second six commandments are horizontal. They relate to how you are to relate to other people. So in some sense, uh, these two commandments are a summation of the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are a summation of the rest of the law. So you could kind of you know, expand it out that way. There's a logical connection between loving God and loving neighbor as well. To love God will mean you will love his creation. You will particularly love the pinnacle of his creation, who is made in his own image. If your heart is full of love for your creator, then you won't hate your fellow creatures. That follows logically. So you can see the unity of the two commands. A lack of love for neighbor actually evinces a lack of love for creator, for God. So it's not a spectrum thing where you need to be careful not to love God too much and ignore your neighbor. That's not the way this works. This is if you love God truly and fully and lean into loving God more and more and more, you will naturally love your neighbor more and more and more. We have to note how completely <laughs> unlike us this kind of selfless love is. <laughs> We're good at having high expectations of others for how they treat us, but we're not very good at living up to those expectations for others. So what does, what does failure to live up to these two commands look like? What would half-hearted love look like to fail to love God with your whole being and your neighbor as yourself? Well, the Old Testament provides a multitude of examples of half-hearted love, of failures to obey God's law. It may look like Israel about to enter the promised land, having just received this commandment, and shirking in fear at the enemies in the land. It may look like Moses leading God's people for decades, but then striking the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. It may look like David devoting himself to worship God in song and writing much of the Psalter, but giving himself over to his desire for Bathsheba. It may look like Peter preaching the gospel, planting churches, but under pressure from the circumcision party in Antioch, pulling away from the Gentile Christians. It may look like someone who is relationally invested in her local church, but shares 
a bit of negative news about a fellow church member so that she can have that proud feeling of being in the know. It may look like a Christian dad who abdicates his leadership responsibility in his home and allows his family to spiritually flounder without his initiative. It may look like a mom who is devoted to her kids but cares more that they are successful than that they are godly. Half-hearted love is endemic. Full self-love is what God demands. The reality of love being the heart of the law reveals glorious truths about God's character. It does not, however, reveal glorious truths about our character. The command to love God supremely and love our neighbor as ourself is a good command, a good way to live, clearly coming from a God who is good, but it quickly reveals to us that we have a love problem. Without thinking about it, every human heart starts his or whole life fundamentally selfish, fundamentally placing our good above others' good. You see, the, the law acts as a mirror. We should look into the mirror of the law and see perfect righteousness. We should see a full self-devotion to our creator, a, a selfless love of our fellow creatures. It's not pie-in-the-sky idealism. It's God's standard by which he judges us. But when we look into the mirror of the law, we see creatures in rebellion against our creator. We see creatures with a love problem. We see ourselves as sinful and not holding up to God's standard. That's the heart of the law. The scribe asks the question, and Jesus gives the answer. Now let's kind of get back into the story and see how the scribe responds. So point two of the sermon, the heart of the law keeper, verses 32 through 34. It says, Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one. And there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared question him any longer. Here's the big riddle of this passage. What do we make of the scribe? What do we think of this guy, this character who, uh, on one hand, there's a lot of positive things going on with him in the narrative. He is such a breath of fresh air compared to the, the questions that Jesus has been receiving. I mean, he's gotten a trying to get him in trouble with Rome question. He's gotten a suppose a wife, his husband dies, and then her next husband dies, and then her next husband dies, and then her next husband. Well, what then, Jesus? That was last week's message. And, I don't, and so the, the, the question here of, hey, what is the heart of the law is a way better question. So that's a great sign for where this scribe is at in his heart. So a better question. And he has a good response. Overall, saying, yes, that's what I think the law says too, Jesus, is, is a good response. Compare that to 
in uh, just two chapters earlier, in, in Mark chapter 10, you had the rich young ruler approach Jesus and ask him a similar question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus articulates the law then, and then the man responds, teacher, I have kept these all from my youth. The scribe doesn't seek to, to self-justify before uh, Jesus' summation of the law. So there's a lot of good going on with the scribe. And then there's Jesus' assessment of him to say he's not far from the kingdom of God. Good news. This isn't a rebuke. This isn't a command. Uh, it's an affirmation. Uh, it stands in big contrast to the paragraphs that are about to follow where Jesus starts rebuking uh, some groups, including the scribes. So there's a lot of uh, encouragement there. Yet, you are not far from the kingdom, maybe is good news, <laughs> because close to being in the kingdom of God is not in the kingdom of God, right? Close isn't in. Not far is still outside. As a scribe, one of Israel's religious leaders seeking to honestly obey the law, I think he's expecting to be in the kingdom. I don't know that this answer is all encouragement. I think it has an edge to it for him to say, well, what then do I lack? Jesus exemplifies for us here a truthful assessment of another person's spiritual condition. It's balanced and it's realistic to say he's not far, might be encouraging, might be feel harsh, but it's honest. It's the truth. He's, he's, he's laying out uh, the reality. And it's not a, a bad sign, right? Like that he's on, he could be on a good path. It would be nice uh, for curiosity's sake if Mark inserted a, a parenthetical note here and said, oh, by the way, this is Josephus, who's a member of the Antioch church, like who you guys know. That, but he didn't. So we don't know the end of the story of this particular scribe. What did this particular scribe think just a week later after Jesus' death and resurrection? We don't know. But he seems like he's on a good trajectory. So there's certainly hope for him as a character in the story. But what can we learn from Jesus' example of his truthful assessment of the spiritual condition? I think what we learn is to be honest about people's progress in coming to faith. Growth can be real, can be led by the Spirit, and someone can still be not yet in the kingdom. I think God is really working in you. He's not, you, he's not far from, you're not far from the kingdom. Praise God for the progress. It's not necessarily loving to jump the gun and assert that somebody is in the kingdom if they're not yet truly converted. This is especially true uh, with us, with our children, as Christian parents are trying to raise our children and, and grow them in the nurture and admonition and fear of the Lord, we hope that as we raise them, we see uh, signs of spiritual life. We hope that we see fruit. We hope that we have good spiritual conversations, that they show interest. Uh, and, we, and we do that patiently. <laughs> That's the thing. We do it patiently. We don't jump the gun and assert, hey, you are definitely saved now. We patiently hope and patiently pray for more and more evidence to be mounted that it becomes undeniable that they are showing spiritual fruit. It's not, it's not helpful to jump the gun. Now, if you are here this morning and you don't know where you stand with 
Jesus, and you're wanting to learn more about Christianity, then that's great. It seems that you, like the scribe, are asking the right questions. So I'm trying to point you to Jesus and his answers as described in God's word. So like Jesus with the scribe, I say, good, keep coming, keep asking questions, read the gospel of Mark and figure out for yourself if Jesus is who he says he is. That's great. One final thing to note is it is possible to be near the kingdom, but not in the kingdom. So this is a warning note. There's a, there's a category, there's a possibility for those uh, who are around Christians, around the Bible, and yet to not be truly saved. Jesus is not far. Words can stand as a warning. Are you in the kingdom or are you not far from the kingdom? The question that is not asked here that I think is hanging in the air in this whole story is, is had the scribe loved God with his entire self and had he loved his neighbor as himself? Like you and me, he would probably say he's tried, but that's not the question. The question is, is his whole life, his whole self lived up to God's standard? Has he been devoted to God in love? How can this man who is close to the kingdom get into the kingdom? There's only one way. It's through Jesus, the law keeper. Jesus had already foretold his death, set his face to Jerusalem, entered Jerusalem, and right here in this text, he is only days away from his own arrest and crucifixion. The heart of the law is love. The heart of the lawgiver is love. And Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of love. Out of love for his father, he humbled himself and took on flesh. Out of love for his father, he performed miracles and showed compassion and cast out demons. Out of love for his father, he went from town to town to teach the gospel of the kingdom. Out of love for his father, he stole away in the early mornings to pray. Out of love for his father, he set his face to Jerusalem, knowing what was to come and walking right into the hands of his enemies. Out of love for his father, he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Out of love for his father, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And out of love for the father, he bore his father's wrath in our place. And by the power of God, he came back to life to restore us to the love of the Father. Jesus loved his Father with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. He sacrificed his very life to bring his neighbor into peace with the Father. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. In his life, as his life unfolded, the way that law took shape was to walk to the cross. As he loved the Father perfectly, he performed the greatest act of love for us. He loved us to the point of death, even death on the cross. He obeyed the law perfectly, yet took the punishment of a lawbreaker. He took the punishment that he didn't deserve, that we deserve 
so that when the Father looks at those who have been united to Jesus by faith, he sees not their sin, for that's been paid for. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. How can all of this be yours? What would we say to the scribe if we were talking to him a week later? What would we say to him? How would we tell him how he can be right with God? Repent and believe. Turn away from your sins, your attempt at self-justification, and acknowledge the truth before God that you deserve to be punished for your sins and turn to Jesus. Receive the gift of his righteousness credited to your account and then obey. Obey not as an outsider trying to get your way into the kingdom, but obey as an insider, a citizen of the kingdom. Obey as an insider, an adopted child of your heavenly father. Obey as one who has been purchased by Jesus's blood. Even as I preach this glorious gospel justification here, even as I preach this gospel, you see the law serves more of a purpose than just driving us to despair. It does more than that for us. It does that. It reveals our shortcomings, but it also becomes, for those of us who are in Christ, our game plan, our law, God's will for our lives, the way that we get to pray, to to please our saving heavenly Father. This is what Paul does for us in Romans chapter 13 that we read earlier in the service. He is expounding on the gospel uh, for the first uh, uh, 11 chapters of Romans, explaining the gospel, unfolding it in all of its beautiful intricacy. And then he begins applying it to the church in Rome. He speaks to Christians in the church on how they should treat their fellow church members. So Christian, hear God's will for your life. Romans 13, 8, we'll read it again. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this law is still binding on you. The law is fulfilled for you by Christ, and then it lands on you in the simplest of terms. Love God and love your neighbor. This is how Paul is applying Jesus' teaching specifically within the life of the church. Love one another. He's saying, Christians, your lawful duty is now to each other. So faith church, look around. Your fellow church members are your law-bound duty. You are to love one another. This is so wonderfully broad, this command, that its applications abound. So I challenge you, if you are a member of faith, to to consider with specificity how you might obey this today or this week. Is there someone you should invite over to your home? Is there someone you should pray for and tell them that you are praying for them? Is there someone you should reconcile with? Is there somebody you should seek to apologize to? Is there someone you should read the Bible with? Love takes a million forms but it seeks to do another spiritual good. 
So my challenge to you is pick something. Pick something specific and obeyable and do it. Maybe write it down in your notes now so that you remember. Obey what Jesus has for you as an adopted child of the king. So Christian, as you love God and as you love your neighbor, you can obey the law. You can walk out of this room today in full-hearted devotion to him. You have a million and one reasons to love God, not least of which is that he has forgiven you of your He has shown himself to be immeasurably good to you in Christ. So love him. When I was in Lebanon in 2008, I met a man named Gary Witherall. Gary had been a missionary in uh, Lebanon in the city of Sidon, uh, which is in the Bible. Uh, He'd been there about seven years prior with his wife named Bonnie. And after being there uh, from about 2000 to 2002, he and his wife were doing really well. Uh, They were both really improving in their Arabic. Gary was serving at Mia Mia Baptist Church outside of Sidon. And Bonnie was serving in a prenatal clinic for Palestinian refugees. Until one morning when a gunman came to the clinic and shot Bonnie three times in the head. She died there in service to God and in love for the unreached people of southern Lebanon. A few weeks later, in a packed-out church, Gary spoke to honor his wife. And the words that he spoke were words of love. Love for his and Bonnie's Savior. Love for the people of Sidon. He proclaimed that day the gospel of Jesus Christ for all to hear, including the man who had killed his wife. On that day, Gary fulfilled the law of love. Let's go and do likewise. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on this passage.